from New York, this is Democracy Now! If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Republican presidential candidates faced off in their first debate Wednesday night, but frontrunner Donald Trump refused to take part. Later today, he'll turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail to face charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. We'll air excerpts of the Republican debate in Milwaukee. First on the stage, who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence Now is not the time for on-the-job training. We don't need to bring in a rookie. We don't need to bring in people without experience. But first, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has apparently died in a plane crash in Russia two months after he led a failed mutiny against Putin. We'll get the latest as questions swirl over what happened. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Officials in Russia say the mercenary leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was among 10 people killed Wednesday when a private jet crashed northwest of Moscow. The crash also reportedly killed Dmitry Utkin, senior mercenary commander who founded the Wagner Group in 2014. Eyewitnesses to the crash reported hearing two bangs before the plane tumbled from the sky, an incident that was apparently captured in a video widely circulated on social media. The crash sparked widespread speculation. Prigozhin and other Wagner leaders were assassinated for leading a failed mutiny in June that saw heavily armed mercenaries advance to within 120 miles of Moscow. Adding to the speculation, Russian media reported Wednesday the Kremlin has fired senior Russian general Sergei Surovikin as Air Force chief. The general was known as an ally of the Wagner Group, close to Prigozhin, and had not been seen in public since the mutiny. We'll have the latest on this story after headlines. Three U.S. senators have pledged additional military support to Ukraine during a visit to Kyiv. On Wednesday, Democratic Senators Richard Blumenthal and Elizabeth Warren and Republican Senator Lindsey Graham met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, voicing their support for President Biden's request this month that Congress approve an additional $13 billion in military aid and $8 billion in humanitarian aid to Ukraine this year. To the media report saying this is a stalemate, you are wrong. They breached a major line of defense yesterday. We're here to say, in a bipartisan way, we want to help them. We want to make sure they have the resources they need to be able to fight back against Vladimir Putin. Senators Warren and Graham. The Biden administration has approved the sale of an additional $500 million in military hardware to Taiwan. The main contractor for the deal would be U.S. arms maker Lockheed Martin, which builds F-16 fighter jets used by Taiwan's military. This comes just weeks after the U.S. approved a weapons aid package to Taiwan worth up to $345 million. In recent months, China's militaries, 
increased its activities around Taiwan, sending fighter jets and warships closer to the island, which Beijing considers part of its sovereign territory. Six new countries will join the BRICS alliance, adding to the bloc of nations led by Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Starting January 1st, BRICS will be expanded to include Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The announcement came as BRICS members wrapped up a three-day summit in South Africa. On Wednesday, Chinese President Xi Jinping blasted what he called a Cold War mentality haunting international politics. The remarks came a day after Xi unexpectedly skipped a major address in Johannesburg, fueling speculation over his health. The speech was instead delivered by Chinese Commerce Minister Wang Wentao. All that we have done in the final analysis is to enable our people to lead a prosperous life. However, some countries, unwilling to give up their hegemonic position, have arbitrarily blocked and suppressed emerging market countries and developing countries, curbing whoever is developing well and tripping up whoever is catching up. On Wednesday, hundreds of environmental and human rights activists gathered outside the BRICS summit, demanding China halt financing for fossil fuel projects in Africa. Protesters cited the China-backed East African crude oil pipeline project known as ECOP. Campaigner and protest leader Zaki Mamdu said a true friend to Africa would not fund projects that displace communities, unravel livelihoods and destroy ecosystems. What friend would come into your house and move you from your house and take your land, kill your crops, and subject your children to illness and harm? Yes, that is a bad friend. That's a bad friend. These ones of China, of Russia, of India, they aspire to be the same colonial extractors. Officials in Turkey have suspended ship traffic in the Turkish Straits linking the Black Sea to the Mediterranean. After wildfires broke out in the region, hundreds of ships were left idled as officials closed the Dardanelles Strait to clear the area for firefighting planes. In neighboring Greece, firefighters are battling more than 350 wildfires that have broken out over the past week, including fires that scorched homes just outside the capital, Athens. Here in the United States, a record-shattering summer heat wave continued Wednesday with more than 130 million people in 22 states under heat alerts. In the Pacific Northwest, the death toll from wildfires in eastern Washington state has risen to two. Farther north, officials in British Columbia have lifted travel restrictions after rain and cooler weather helped bring wildfires under control. British Columbia Premier David Eby said Wednesday human activity is to blame for Canada's worst wildfire season on record. Oh, I think that without a doubt, uh, the ferocity of the fires, uh, the extent of the burning, the historic nature of the forest fires we're seeing, not just here in British Columbia, but in Greece, in Nova Scotia, in the United States, uh, it's just devastating fires uh, that are clearly linked to, to human-caused climate change. In Georgia, Rudy Giuliani surrendered to the Fulton County Jail Wednesday on charges he conspired to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss. Giuliani was released on $150,000 bond and told reporters he was, quote, very, very honored to be involved in this case, unquote. 
Two other lawyers and co-defendants in Trump's racketeering indictment also surrendered Wednesday. Sidney Powell, who peddled pro-Trump election conspiracy theories, and Kenneth Cheesebro, an architect of the fake electors plot. So far, nine of the 19 co-defendants have turned themselves in. Trump is expected to surrender today. Republican presidential candidates faced off in their first debate Wednesday evening, but frontrunner Donald Trump refused to take part. During the debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, all eight participants declined to raise their hands when asked by Fox News moderator Martha McCallum if human activity was to blame for the climate crisis. Do you believe in human behavior is causing climate change. Raise your hand if you do. Look, look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. I mean, I'm happy to take it to start. <laughs> Alexander, <laughs> so do you want to raise your hand or not? I don't think that's the way to do While Trump skipped the debate, he appeared instead in a pre-taped interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson that was posted on X minutes before the presidential primary debate started. In the interview, Trump predicted the U.S. will see more political violence and defended his supporters who attacked the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. People in that crowd said it was the most beautiful day they've ever experienced. There was love in that crowd. There was love and unity. I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love. After headlines, we'll air excerpts from the Republican primary debate and speak with national affairs correspondent John Nichols of The Nation magazine in Wisconsin. South Carolina's Supreme Court has upheld the state's six-week abortion ban, reversing its earlier decision that the ban was unconstitutional. The reversal came after South Carolina lawmakers replaced the only woman justice on the bench with a male judge following her retirement and passed a new version of the ban. South Carolina is the only state to have an all-male state Supreme Court. It previously allowed abortions until 22 weeks of pregnancy. At least 22 states have banned or rolled back abortion rights since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer. Politico is reporting Washington, D.C. Attorney General Brian Schwab has launched an investigation into right-wing judicial activists and Federalist Society co-chair Leonard Leo and his network of nonprofits. Earlier this year, Politico reported one of Leo's registered charities paid his for-profit public relations company at least $43 million. The charity, which recently relocated from Virginia to Texas, is called the 85 Fund and received $117 million in anonymous funding in 2021. The nonprofit is run by Carrie Severino, a former clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Leonard Leo is widely known as Donald Trump's court whisperer and was involved in the selection of all three of former President Trump's far-right Supreme Court justices. It's not the first time Leo and his dark money network have come under scrutiny. Leo was the recipient of likely the largest ever political donation in the United States when he received one6 billion dollars from conservative billionaire Barry Side in 2021. The watchdog campaign for accountability says some $73 million has been moved from nonprofits connected to Leo to his for-profit firms since 2016. 
and India has become the fourth nation to achieve a moon landing. On Wednesday, India's robotic Chandrayaan-3 lander touched down near the moon's south pole, an unexplored terrain that's believed to hold vast amounts of water ice, which could one day be separated into fuel and air by lunar astronauts. India's United Nations ambassador, Ruchira Kambuj, said the landing was a milestone for scientists in the global south. This achievement not only marks India's presence on the moon, but also symbolizes the aspirations of 1.4 billion Indians. Beyond that, it's a historic moment for humanity as we venture into uncharted territory near the moon's south pole. India's successful landing came just days after Russia's Luna 25 spacecraft crashed while attempting to land at another site near the moon's south pole. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has apparently died in a plane crash in Russia two months after he led a failed mutiny against Putin. Stay with us. You're selling your soul, working all day, overtime hours for well, nothing's gonna change if all you do is wish you could wake up and it not be true. Join a union. Fight for better pay. You better join a union, brother. Organize today. You'll see where the problem lies when the union comes around rich men earning north of a million want to keep the working folk down want to keep the working folk down if you form a union you'll soon find that working people are of understanding and some solidarity That ain't right, friend If you're struggling with your health and you're putting on the pounds Doctor gives you opiates to help you get around Well, wouldn't it be better for folks like you and me If medicine was subsidized and healthcare was free Join a union Rich Men Earning North of a Million by Billy Bragg. Bragg released this song in response to Oliver Anthony's song, Rich Men North of Richmond, which has become a viral right-wing anthem and was referenced at last night's Republican presidential debate. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Two months to the day after the private Russian mercenary group, Wagner, staged a failed mutiny, the group's head, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was apparently killed in a plane crash north of Moscow shortly after 6 p.m. local time Wednesday. Eyewitness videos posted online show the plane was missing a wing as it spiraled to the ground. 
The official passenger list said several other senior Wagner members were on board, including Dmitry Utkin, a mercenary commander who allegedly founded the Wagner Group in 2014. Also on board was Yevgeny Makarian, who fought with the mercenary group in Syria, and longtime Prigozhin ally Valery Chigalov, who was in charge of his business empire, including his oil investments in Syria. Last month, the United States imposed sanctions on Chikalov for facilitating shipments of weapons to Russia. The crash sparked widespread speculation that Prigozhin and other Wagner leaders were assassinated for leading a failed mutiny in June that saw heavily armed mercenaries advance to within 120 miles of Moscow. Adding to the speculation, Russian media reported Wednesday the Kremlin has fired senior Russian general Sergei Suravikin as Air Force chief. Chief, the general was known as an ally of the Wagner Group and had not been seen in public since the mutiny. Just three days ago, Prigozhin posted one of his first online videos since leading the failed uprising. He appeared to be somewhere in Africa and spoke with a rifle in his hands with other armed men behind him. We are working. The temperature is 50-plus degrees Celsius. Everything as we like. Wagner PMC conducts reconnaissance and search actions, makes Russia even greater on all continents, and Africa more free. Justice and happiness for the African people. We're making life a nightmare for ISIS and al-Qaeda and other bandits. Since Prigozhin was killed Wednesday, there's been no official comment from the Kremlin or defense ministry. Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a speech about an hour after the plane crash, but he made no reference to it. Putin later addressed the BRICS summit remotely and again did not mention the crash. This was President Biden's response when asked to comment on the crash and the death of Prigozhin by reporters. I don't know for a fact. What happened? But I'm not surprised. Do you think? Do you, do you believe? There's not much that happens in Russia that Putin's not behind. I don't know enough to know the answer. I've been working out for the last hour and a half. For more, we're joined by Kimberly Martin, professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. She's been researching and writing about the Wagner Group for years. Professor, welcome back to Democracy Now! First, your first response yesterday, it was like oh, close to 1.30 in the afternoon when we heard uh, Eastern time that Prigozhin possibly was dead. Not unexpected at all. Uh, we know that Putin takes revenge on people who are disloyal. Uh, it was two months to the day after Prigozhin began his mutiny. Um, and it's fitting that it happened on an airplane, given that as part of that mutiny, uh, Prigozhin's men uh, ended up uh, shooting down uh, a series of Russian military helicopters in an airplane and killed 13 people. And Professor Martin, can you say, uh, talk about the other senior Wagner leaders who were apparently on this plane with Prigozhin? Yeah, probably the most significant one is Chikalov, who, as you mentioned earlier, was in charge of the uh, Evropolis uh, business part of Prigozhin's holdings. Um, Prigozhin has many, many holdings uh, in many, many uh, very hidden places around the world. Um, but uh, Chikalov was associated with those in Syria. And that is significant because it appeared that the uh, Wagner personnel in Syria had already been taken away from 
uh, Wagner uh, command uh, immediately after the mutiny. We know that the um, the Russian military uh, personnel on the ground, uniformed military on the ground in Syria, had worked with Syrian authorities to either send Wagner people home who did not wish to sign new contracts or had the rest sign contracts uh, with uh, uh, somebody else in Syria. It could have been either the Russian uniformed military or an alternative group called Redoute that has been performing similar uh, activities in guarding oil and gas facilities for Russia in Syria. So getting Chakalov out of the way was probably also a mechanism to take over those uh, business holdings uh, much more easily. On, on Utkin, there had actually been rumors that Utkin was killed many years ago. Um, he had not been seen publicly in, in several years, uh, except for this very odd video that came out in July uh, under very low light uh, that was filmed at the Wagner New Camp in, in Belarus. Um, and there had been some speculation that maybe that wasn't really Utkin and that maybe the reason it was filmed in such low light was to try to hide somebody who was playing the part of Utkin. Um, but nonetheless, this is uh, essentially a statement by the Russian state um, that these people have been now out of the way. Whatever really happened to them, we may never know if they were really killed or uh, just uh, given another identity and sent off to some island somewhere. Um, but in, in any case, it appears that these people are no longer significant actors uh, in Russia. Professor Martin, you mentioned Redoute, which is uh, uh, reportedly another paramilitary group, except this one is headed by uh, Russia's uh, defense minister, Sergei Shoigu. Uh, it's not clear that Shoigu actually heads it. Um, it has a much closer relationship uh, with the defense ministry than certainly uh, Prigozhin's group has had. It got along very well with the defense ministry. Um, and in, in many ways, it's not going to really be an easy substitute for Wagner because it does not have Wagner's battle experience. In Syria, what it was primarily involved in is uh, guarding oil and gas facilities that are associated with a different uh, Russian oligarch, Timchenko, somebody who's actually much, much closer to Putin uh, than Prigozhin ever was. Um, and so in Syria, it would be very easy for them to uh, take over uh, the kinds of duties that Prigozhin's forces were uh, carrying out more recently. Very early on in Syria, in, in Russia's military involvement in Syria, Prigozhin's forces were engaged in full battle. We know that in 2020, they also recruited former Syrian opposition uh, folks uh, to go fight in Libya on behalf of Prigozhin's activities in Libya for the warlord Khalifa Haftar. And Redoute has done nothing like that to our knowledge. Um, but in Syria, it would be easy for Redoute to take over the forces. Um, it appears that in recent weeks, Redoute has been trying to compete against Wagner to recruit people for Africa as well. But given that the tasks that Wagner has been fulfilling in Africa are significantly different from just guarding uh, facilities um, in the Central African Republic, they have been uh, guarding the, the leadership that are, are threatened by, by rebels, the President Chouadara's leadership. Um, they have been engaged in a lot of real battles with those rebels um, in Mali. Certainly, they're, they're fulfilling uh, similar duties um, in Sudan. Not merely are they guarding facilities, but they are smuggling gold out of Sudan. 
Sudan to the um, the United Arab Emirates uh, for melting down and then sale of the cash back to Moscow. Um, and in Libya, they've been working with Khalifa Haftar. And I think uh, it would be difficult for Redoute to take those over anytime soon. Um, but I think it's entirely possible that some version of Wagner will continue operating in Africa, even without uh, Prigozhin. I don't think they needed Prigozhin uh, for those activities with the local commanders on the ground to continue. The video we just showed of Prigozhin, supposedly the last time he was seen somewhere in Africa, people speculated it was in Mali. If you can talk about that, he was also seen on the um, outskirts of the Africa summit that Putin held in St. Petersburg. And also, do you believe he's dead? I mean, uh, Prigozhin obviously is famous for using body doubles, but there's no—we just know there was a crash. So, complicated questions. On the images— um, Many of them have not been verified in terms of timestamp and geolocation. Uh, the the uh, video that was taken of him that appeared to be in Mali, his airplane flew from Mali to Moscow. Um, and so the supposition is that it took place in Mali. But the background was um, just uh, essentially Savannah. And it you know could have been a TV set for all we know. Um, and so it, it's very hard to verify any of those videos or any of those photographs. Um, uh, we do know for sure that the Russian state has announced that uh, somebody with Prigozhin's name um, has been killed. Uh, we know that Prigozhin's uh, media channels are announcing that he has been killed um, at a building that was formerly associated with him in St. Petersburg before the mutiny. Uh, there were lights on the building last night in the shape of a cross, indicating that people who were working for him wanted to give the impression that he's killed. So whether he's dead or not, um, he is certainly dead in his future in Russian politics. Um, but yes, it did appear here that he was flying back and forth between the new Wagner um, uh, base camp in the middle of Belarus, back and forth, both to Moscow and to St. Petersburg, um, participating in the uh, summit that Putin held with African leaders in July, um, and then that he probably also was in Mali a couple of days ago before flying back to Moscow. And Professor Martin, very soon after reports of his death emerged, there were numerous telegram channels that were warning of uh, Wagner taking revenge. Uh, and some Russian security forces were reportedly put on high alert. So are you expecting anything to happen? You know, something might happen, but it's not clear how it could possibly be successful. So in a sense, it makes sense that Putin waited two months to take revenge, if that's actually what happened, um, because those uh, the, the mutineers are no longer located on Russian territory. Part of the, the so-called deal that was reached uh, with Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, was to put them on Belarusian territory, and they are in the middle of, of Belarus. They are in an area that is a rural area with out any big cities nearby in the exact center of the country. And so um, if those people were to plan anything, it would be fairly easy to contain them in Belarus without allowing them back into Russia by Russian military and security forces. The other thing to keep in mind is that the people engaged in the mutiny were the people who earlier in the month of May had been fighting in Bakhmut in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine. And those were primarily prisoners that Prigozhin had released from Russian prisons with the deal that they would have uh, their sentences uh, commuted um, if they were willing to fight for Wagner for a certain number of months. 
And what that means is that they may have been very loyal to Prigozhin because Prigozhin arranged this for them, but they were not the the kind of fighters that we associate with what Wagner has done in Africa in particular. They were not sophisticated military people. Um, they were former prisoners who were doing this to to get out of jail free. And certainly they had battle experience in Bakhmut, but they're they're not particularly well trained. And also, as part of that deal that moved the forces to Belarus, um, Wagner gave up its heavy weaponry that it had had in Ukraine. And so that means that they're armed just with, you know, probably Kalashnikovs and, and things that are similar to that. So again, they would be very easy to contain. The other Wagner forces are in Syria and in several places in Africa, as, as we mentioned earlier, the Central African Republic, uh, Mali, uh, Libya and Sudan. The only way that they could get back to Russia is by taking Russian military airplanes, which go through the Khmeimen air airbase that Russia now controls in Syria. And so unless they had support from Russian uniformed military forces, they have no way of getting back to Russia. So there may be a few people in Russia who um, had been engaged in Wagner, who have recently retired or were, quote unquote, on vacation, who might try something. But it's a very small group of people. They are not heavily armed and it's most likely not the best trained members of Wagner. And so I think that probably Putin is is pretty safe from any kind of an uprising by Wagner folks per se. The, the one question we have is how the Russian military feels about this. And there had been some indication, as your reporting indicated, um, Surovikin um, has been um, uh, detained. We haven't seen him publicly since the mutiny. He had been identified by Prigozhin as his go-between with the defense ministry. He had been in charge of uh, Russia's air and space forces, and he was relieved of those duties we don't know how many people in the Russian military actually supported Prigozhin and what this effect might now have within the Russian military forces. But I would say that so far we haven't seen anything happening indicating that there would be any kind of additional mutiny. Let's end with Yale historian Timothy Snyder, who's written extensively about Russia, posting Wednesday. So the Russian officer Gherkin, who started the Donbass War in 2014, is in jail, the only Russian general to carry out a successful maneuver in 2022. Surovikin has been relieved of duty. And the only Russian commander to take a city in 2023, Prigozhin, has been murdered. Your final response, Professor Martin. I think Russia has not been doing as well in Ukraine as it had originally hoped to do. I think we're seeing some um, new uh, energy on behalf of the Ukrainians who are now launching their counteroffensive. And I think that all of this political infighting that is happening among security forces in Russia makes Russia weaker in the battlefield. So this certainly did nothing to strengthen uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine, and it appears that it has weakened Russia. Kimberly Martin, we want to thank you for being with us, professor of thank political you. science at Barnard College, Columbia University. She's been researching and writing about the Wagner Group for years. Coming up, eight Republican presidential candidates faced off in their first debate Wednesday night, but frontrunner Donald Trump refused to take part. He's turning himself in today to the Fulton County Jail to face charges for attempting to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Stay with us.
Ball of Fire by the Scatolites. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. We turn now to the first Republican presidential debate of the 2024 race. Eight candidates gathered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for a debate hosted by Fox News. But the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, refused to attend, opting to do a sit-down interview with former Fox host Tucker Carlson. Later today, Trump will turn himself in at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia, to face racketeering charges for running a criminal enterprise with 18 co-defendants to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Nine of his co-defendants have already turned themselves in, including former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who peddled pro-Trump election conspiracy theories. Trump's indictments uh, was one of the main issues—well, one of many issues, I won't say main—raised during the debate, which saw eight candidates on stage. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Trump's former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley—also, she was the South Carolina governor— the 38-year-old biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. The Republican candidates were asked about Trump's indictment during the debate by Fox News moderators Martha McCallum and Brett Baer. We are going to take a brief moment and talk about the elephant not in the room. four different states on 91 counts. He will be processed tomorrow in Georgia at the Fulton County Jail for charges relating to the 2020 election loss. You all signed a pledge to support the eventual Republican nominee. If former President Trump is convicted in a court of law, would you still support him as your party's choice? Please raise your hand if you would. Six of the eight candidates raised their hand. Just hold on. So just be clear, Governor Christie, you were kind of late to the game there, but no, you raised I, your hand? No, I'm doing this. Look, look, I'm doing this. And I know this. you didn't. Whoa, whoa. No. Come, what's and the no, look, would, would, look here's, the, here's the bottom line. Someone's got to stop normalizing this conduct. Okay? Now... And now, whether or not, whether or not you believe that the criminal charges are right or wrong, the conduct is beneath the office of President of the United States. And, and, and you know, this is the great thing about this country. Booing is allowed, but it doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the truth. Mr. Ramaswamy, you raised your hand supporting... No, I'd like to hey. get in and respond. Let's just speak the truth, okay? President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. It's a fact. And Chris Christie, honest to God, your claim that Donald Trump is motivated by vengeance and grievance would be a lot more credible if your entire campaign were not based on vengeance and grievance against one man. blindly bashing Donald Trump without an iota of vision for this country. They could just change the channel to MSNBC right now. But I'm not running for president of MSNBC. 
I am running for president of the United States. We're skating on thin ice and we cannot set a precedent where the party in power uses police force to indict its political opponents. It is wrong. We have to end the weaponization of justice in this country. That was biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at last night's Republican presidential debate. He went on to question former Vice President Mike Pence. Well, Mike, why don't you say this? Join me yeah. in making a commitment well that on day one you would pardon Donald Trump. I'm the only candidate on the stage who had the courage to actually say it. That is how we move our nation forward I don't know and turn why the page forward. That's exactly Trump right. Will be convicted of these crimes. You should make, be able to make a commitment. The same oh. justice system that was this Vivek, corrupt. The difference between you and, and me. Yeah, I'm not a professional actually, politician. That's I've the difference. Actually, who can answer uh, a question? I've actually given pardons when I was governor of state of Indiana. It usually follows a finding of guilt and contrition by the individual that's been convicted. So, we'll look, we'll, if I'm president in the United States, we'll give fair consideration any pardon request. But if I may... <laughs> Vice President Mike Pence went on to defend his actions on January 6, 2021. Now look, I've made it clear. I, I had hoped that the issues surrounding the 2020 election and the controversies around January 6 had not come to this, had not come to criminal proceedings. I would rather they had been resolved by the American people and the American people alone. But no one's above the law, and President Trump is entitled to the presumption of innocence that every American is entitled to, and we will make sure and extend that to him. But the American people deserve to know that the president asked me in his request that I reject or return votes unilaterally, power that no vice president in American history had ever exercised or taken. He asked me to put him over the Constitution, and uh, I chose the Constitution, and I always will. I had no Vice right President to overturn Pence. the election, and Kamala Harris will have no right to overturn the election when we beat them in 2024. Former Vice President Mike Pence at Wednesday's Republican debate in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We're going now to Madison, Wisconsin, where we're joined by John Nichols, the nation's national affairs correspondent. His latest piece is The Party of the Big Lie and the Even Bigger Lie. You were in Milwaukee last night, John. Talk about the significance of this first Republican primary debate without the— uh, absolute front runner, so far ahead. He leaves everyone uh, behind him. Uh, but then what took place as people clearly did not take Trump on when asked that key question, if convicted, would you support him? Uh, six of the eight candidates did. Just lay out the scene for us. Sure. The scene is defined by Donald Trump. And I think that what happened last night was further evidence that the Republican Party has become the party of Trump. Uh, so you have eight people on stage who all would like to be the Republican nominee. But in many senses, this was a gathering of the people who are almost certain not to be the Republican nominee. The polls in favor of Trump are overwhelming. He leads the next closest candidate, uh, Ron DeSantis, by the better part of 40 points, and the others are, are generally in single digits. So what you ended up with here was a sort of surreal debate in which uh, candidates went after one another quite aggressively. In fact, at, at several points, it was very chaotic. Uh, but in many senses, it was like an argument at the kids' table on Thanksgiving rather than, than a classic political debate. And you did see a lot of desperation on the part of these candidates to you know, make their name, to use this moment to 
uh, get at least into the public mind as the clear alternative to Trump. Uh, what was interesting is that uh, while certainly uh, Vivek Ramaswamy did quite well at that, I think. I think he you know, said many of the most outrageous things and the most aggressive things. And I think he came across as a very strong communicator. He often had the crowd on his side, although not always. Uh, but what was striking was, uh, I think, a couple of other things. The desperation of Mike Pence. Uh, Pence seemed to, at every turn, uh, be trying to you know, hog the mic to get as much, much time as he could. But it never quite worked. And he was often called out by other candidates. Um, another notable thing was uh, that uh, Ron DeSantis really didn't um, define himself very well in this debate. He tended to repeat his, uh, you know, campaign trail punchlines and talking points, but he never really had a, a breakout moment. If there was a breakout moment for anybody, it might have been uh, Nikki Haley dressing Ron DeSantis down for some of his statements on foreign policy. But at the end of the day, the, the reality was summed up by that question about Trump and whether they would, you know, support him. By and large, they, they said they would. In fact, uh, in some cases, aggressively suggesting they would. And that created the, the sense here that um, these candidates are really divided into two camps. One, people who appear, in the case of uh, Ramaswamy, as an example, to be uh, trying to be Trump's vice presidential nominee, or at least might be interested in that prospect. And then another camp that seems to be trying to make its name for a post-Trump moment, uh, and that would be especially Christie. I want to go to Asa Hutchinson. And now he is way, yes. way, way behind in the polls, the former Arkansas governor who is not supporting Trump. But he raised a very interesting issue that is being written about extensively by more and more conservative legal scholars. This is Hutchinson. I did not raise my hand because there's an important issue we as a party have to face. And over a year ago, I said that Donald Trump was morally disqualified from being president again as a result of what happened on January 6th. More people are understanding the importance of that, including conservative legal scholars who says he may be disqualified under the 14th Amendment from being president again as a result of the insurrection. This is something that could disqualify him under our rules and under the Constitution. And so, obviously, I'm not going to support somebody who's been convicted of a serious felony or who has dis is disqualified under our Constitution, and that's consistent with RNC rules. So that's former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. You know, there are 4,000 people in the audience. You can hear him being roundly booed. Yeah. But you've written extensively about the 14th Amendment. Again, increasingly conservative legal scholars are also writing about this. Explain. Sure. The 14th Amendment, Section 3, which uh, is a post-Civil War uh, section, post-Civil War Amendment, uh, it deals with people who foment insurrection, people who swear an oath to the United States and then, in a position of power, take actions that uh, might upend the government, might uh, in some way uh, cause a, a political crisis of the sort that... that uh, that we saw certainly during the Civil War and that, that many people believe we saw uh, more recently with Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Certainly different actions by any measure, but yet at the end of the day, a failure to uh, abide by an oath to uh, follow the basic strictures of the, the Constitution. 
And the people who've been talking about 14.3 have generally been on the left. Uh, people like John Bonifaz and other constitutional lawyers who brought it up many times. But in recent months, you have seen conservative legal scholars uh, and even some conservative activists bring this issue up. And, and it is a legitimate issue, a complex one, because the Constitution doesn't really lay out exactly how you enforce uh, the, this standard. But the standard is that if someone swore an oath to the government, uh, either encouraged or supported insurrection, and then uh, seeks to return to government, that they can't do so, that they can't continue to hold an office. And there's a lot of interpretation in all sorts of ways on this. But um, as Asa Hutchison pointed out, this is something that, that has been raised as a genuine concern as regards Trump. If he's convicted, it could become an even bigger concern, particularly if he's convicted in the uh, Washington, D.C. case brought at the federal level by Jack Smith, or in the Georgia case, both of which talk about over, attempting to overturn an election. And to be clear, so it would deal. be individual secretaries of state who could say Trump is not going to be on our state ballot? Theoretically, that's one way to do it. And certainly that's something that uh, the uh, several groups, John Bonifaz's group and others, have, have raised as a possibility. Um, there is also the possibility that, that Congress itself could uh, take action and, and via resolution say that, that uh, it is the determination of the Congress of the United States that, that uh, Donald Trump was, is in violation of 14.3. Uh, I mean, there's several ways to go at this. Uh, no matter what happens, if it does, if it were to occur, if a secretary of state were to bar Donald Trump from the ballot, you'd have a, a legal fight. There's very little question of that. Um, and I think that what's significant with Asa Hutchison bringing this up in the debate is that it brought this issue more to the forefront. And, and I think opens up, hopefully, a broader discussion about the clear constitutional concerns as regards someone like Donald Trump seeking to return to the presidency. Well, although Donald Trump, of course, who's the leading candidate, skipped the debate, he appeared instead in a pre-taped interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter. Do you think we're moving towards civil war? There's tremendous passion and there's tremendous love. Uh, you know, January 6th was a very interesting day because they don't report it properly. Uh, I believe it was the largest crowd I've ever spoken before. And you know some of the crowds I've spoken before. And uh, like July 4th on the mall, uh, I think they had a million people there. Uh, but I think that the biggest crowd I've ever spoken before was on January 6th. And people that were in that crowd a very, very small group of people. And we said patriotically and peacefully, peacefully and patriotically, right? Nobody ever says that. Go peacefully and patriotically. But people that were in that crowd that day, very small group of people went down there. And then you, there are a lot, of, a lot of scenarios that we can talk about. But people in that crowd said it was the most beautiful day they've ever experienced. There was love in that crowd. There was love and unity. I have never seen such spirit and such passion and such love. And I've also never seen simultaneously and from the same people such hatred of what they've done to our country. So do you think it's possible that there's open conflict? We seem to be moving I, I towards don't something. Know. I don't know because I don't know what it, you know, I, I can say this. 
Uh, there's a level of passion that I've never seen. There's a level of hatred that I've never seen. And that's probably a bad combination. So, John Nichols, your response to uh, Trump's comments to fired uh, Fox News host uh, Tucker Carlson. Also, the fact what he said, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy mimicked his line, which is he said, America is an, in- is an internal sort of cold cultural mm-hmm. civil war. Last night, he said. Yeah. Um, well, I was in Madison, Wisconsin on uh, January 6th. And so um, I can't attest to what uh, Donald Trump thinks he saw. But uh, my uh, sense of what occurred on that day is very, very different than his. And I think that the same goes for um, committees that have investigated it uh, and others. And so Trump is clearly putting his spin on this. But the most troubling thing is that he is suggesting that uh, there is a possibility for additional violence. And uh, that's, that is a, a deeply unsettling statement by a former president, the front runner in a presidential race. And it also does, as you suggest, parallel uh, what some of the candidates are saying, especially uh, Ramaswamy, uh, who has, you know, did indeed in the debate suggest a very dark vision of America. Uh, in fact, it was, it was, uh, he explicitly rejected Ronald Reagan's warning in America statement from back in the 1980s and and argued that that things are actually pretty awful uh, and potentially could get worse. So you really do have a a split from the Republican Party of the past to a party that is is much more, uh, for lack of a better term, combative. Uh, Last night's debate in Milwaukee, uh, Republican presidential candidates were also asked about the climate crisis. This was on a day when the heat in Milwaukee forced the closing of the Milwaukee schools. During the debate, Fox News played a question from Alexander Diaz, a student at Catholic University of America. Polls consistently show that young people's number one issue is climate change. How will you, as both president of the United States and leader of the Republican Party, calm their fears that the Republican Party doesn't care about climate change? So we want to start on this with a show of hands. Do you believe in human behavior is causing climate change? Raise your hand if you do. Look, we're not school children. Let's have the debate. I mean, I'm happy to take it to start. (laughs) Alexander, so do you want to raise your hand or not? I don't think that's the way to do. So let me just say to Alexander this. First of all, One of the reasons our country's decline is because of the way the corporate media treats Republicans versus Democrats. Biden was on the beach while those people were suffering. He was asked about it. He said, no comment. Are you kidding me? As somebody that's handled disasters in Florida, you've got to be activated. You've got to be there. You've got to be present. You've got to be helping people who are doing this. And here's the deal. So is that a yes or is that a yes? Is that a hand raise? You do not. I think it was a hand raise for him, and it's um, my hands are in my pockets. No, 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 I didn't raise, I didn't raise a hand. Let us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change oh, agenda whoa, 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 whoa. is a hoax. Oh, the climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence And the reality is, the anti-carbon agenda is the wet blanket on our economy. And so the reality is more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate change. Governor, right, Governor look, Haley, are you bought and paid for? Hold on, hold on. Listen, listen, listen. Hold on, hold on. I've had enough. I've had enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like <laughs> chat GPT standing up here. That's Chris Christie. And 
the last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, what's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here was Barack Obama. And I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur standing on stage tonight. Come on, give me a hug. <laughs> give me a hug just same, like you did to Obama. The same type of amateur. And, and you'll help elect me just like you did to Obama, too. Give me that The same hug, type of amateur. Got, hold on. Hold on. Hey, Governor Haley, would you like to respond? Deserves. Are you so, bought Brett, and paid what for? what I would like to say is the fact that I think this is exactly why Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. Clean air, clean water, we want to see that taken care of, but there's a right way to do it. And the right way to do it is, first of all, yes, is climate change real? Yes, it is. But if you want to go and really change the environment, then we need to start telling China and India that they have to lower their emissions. That was the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, who was the South Carolina governor. John Nichols, very quickly before we move on to foreign policy. Sure. Uh, look, we saw peak climate denial in a Republican debate. And it's kind of amazing at this late stage in, in history that uh, it was A, stated, and B, um, even on the, the candidates who uh, weren't quite as aggressive as, uh, as Ramaswamy, uh, there, were, there was avoidance. And you noticed that in that clip you played, uh, the candidates immediately tried to go off to other topics to talk about whether they were bought and paid for, to talk about China, to talk about Russia, um, rather than to, to focus in on the issue that was raised. And I think this sums up the Republican Party at this point. Uh, the moderate position in the Republican Party is avoidance, uh, but I think a very strong position is, you know, a very uh, popular position within the party is one of actual denial. And you saw a candidate on stage go full board on that, which was quite remarkable, especially on a day when literally it, uh, the heat index was 114 degrees in Milwaukee. Well, Republican candidates were also asked about the war in Ukraine. This is debate moderator Brett Baer of Fox News. Mr. Ramaswamy, you would not support an increase of funding to Ukraine? I would not. And I think that this is disastrous that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border when we should use those same military resources to prevent across the invasion of our own southern border here in the United States of America. We are driving Russia further into China's hands. The Russia-China alliance is the single greatest threat we face. And I find it offensive that we have professional politicians on the stage that will make a pilgrimage to Kiev, to their Pope, Zelensky, without doing the same thing for people in Maui or the south side of Chicago okay. right, or Brett. Kensington. Okay. I think on. that we have to put I'm the in. interests of Americans first, secure our own border instead of somebody else's. A win for Russia is a win for China. We have to know that Ukraine is the first line of defense for us. And the problem that Vivek doesn't understand is he wants to hand Ukraine to Russia. He wants to let China eat Taiwan. He wants to go and stop funding Israel. You don't do that to friends. What you do instead is you have the backs of your friends. Ukraine is a front line of defense. Putin has said if Russia, once Russia takes Ukraine, Poland and the Baltics are next. That's a world war. We're trying to prevent war. Look at what Putin did today. He killed Pergozin. When I was at the UN, the Russian ambassador suddenly died. This guy is a murderer, and you are choosing a murderer over, over a pro American country. 
first of all. First of all. First of all, Mr. Ramaswamy, you have 30 seconds. Mr. DeSant, you know, Nikki, DeSantis, I wish you well right. in your future career on the boards of Lockheed and Raytheon. You know, I'm not on but the, the fact of, of the Lockheed matter, and Raytheon, and you know, you Boeing came off of it, but you've been pushing this lie. Stage, you've been pushing this lie all week, Nikki. You want Nikki. to go and defund Israel? This, you want to okay, give Taiwan to China? Okay, let me address that. I'm glad you brought that up. You want to go and give Ukraine? I'm going to address each of those right now. This is the false lies of a So you the reality make America is, less safe. You have no foreign me, policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, the foreign policy experience that you are Governor DeSantis, you were mentioned in the territorial dispute. Not only— uh, No, it's not so a territorial as, as dispute either. President of the United States, your first obligation is to defend our country and its people. And that means— you're sending all this money, but you're not doing what we need to do to secure our own border. We have tens of thousands oh, wow. of people who are being killed because what well, we're not handling and both. And both so I am going to declare time. it a national emergency. I'm, I'm not going to send troops to Ukraine, but I am going to send them to our southern border. When these drug pushers are bringing fentanyl across the border, that's going to be the last thing they do. We're going to use force and we're going to leave them stone cold okay. dead. Okay. So that was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, before that former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley and also Vivek Ramaswamy. John Nichols, your response. It was a remarkable exchange. You could write books about that. Uh, just those few minutes there. Uh, and, and in doing so, get a pretty good insight to where the Republican Party is. Uh, you clearly saw the America first position uh, that Donald Trump obviously articulated in many cases as president, but even taken to greater extremes by Ramaswamy and uh, to a lesser extent by uh, DeSantis. But what was fascinating in that exchange was the extent to which uh, Nikki Haley really emerged as, uh, I think, one of the most effective communicators on the stage and one of the most aggressive communicators. She's nowhere near the others in the polls. Um, she's got a long way to go. But she's clearly doing a, a better job, frankly, than some of the other uh, candidates who are attempting to distinguish themselves in, in putting herself out there. And you saw the crowd's reaction to her. But what was fascinating was the extent to which uh, Ramaswamy refused to back down. In fact, uh, he actually, as you noted in that clip, suggested that uh, Haley was really trying out for a place on the board of some defense contractor. It was a very aggressive uh, hit and one that I, I think was notable because it gets to, I think, a lot of the, the deep divisions within the Republican Party about foreign policy. I wish that the moderators had, had really played this out a little more and given more time to a, a deeper investigation of this. And I think it's especially notable that DeSantis uh, was desperately trying to get into the discussion, but came in not with, with particularly deep insights, but, but just a repetition of talking points about the border. John Nichols, we want to thank you for being with us, the nation's national affairs correspondent. We'll link to your latest piece, The Party of the Big Lie and the Even Bigger Lie. This all on the eve of President Trump turning himself in. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.